0: When I was recording phone calls for this podcast, Jimmy was in a federal prison in West Virginia. He also spent some time in MCC in downtown Manhattan, where infamously Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. Jimmy had a lot of time to think and play through back in his mind all the elements of betrayal that led to his arrest, his trial, and his conviction. All the players in this case were put on the stand And Jimmy had to sit in open court and watch Mohammed Stewart, Winston Harris, Khalil Abdullah, Henry Butler, and a few other of his associates testify to a narrative that the U.S. attorney meticulously crafted. Jimmy is and was a storyteller, so listening to these calls again reminds me of the human part of this. I think Jimmy would agree some of these guys were friends at some point. For example... Jimmy and Khalil Abdullah traveled to Mecca together on a religious pilgrimage. That is heavy stuff. To then have that person turn around and put you under the jail, it had to hurt his soul. When anyone is brought into the federal criminal justice system, it's an experience that ruins not only the lives of the defendant, but it crushes families, leaves kids without a father or mother, and depletes resources. If you have to pay legal fees, it's devastating.
1: Can you talk about your brother? Um, is that something that that you're you're okay with? Um,
2: nah, I don't. I don't really want to go into debt about that. Only because he he's a fu- fugitive, and he may one day have to face trial. Got you know? got. How,
1: how many brothers do you have? I
2: have um three brothers. Three. I have three brothers. Uh-huh. One of them was with um, dealing with Henry Butler. Him and Henry Butler got arrested together on the same case. He got 12 years. One of my other brothers is a fugitive. of
1: Is he the only one that did not cooperate with the story that the government were uh, proposed.
2: Well, they got him out of the way immediately because, of course, he cut, he wasn't going to testify against me, or he wasn't going to cooperate against me. So they gave him the twelve years plea, got him out of the way because they didn't want to have to expose Muhammad Stewart as their informant because that's how he ended up getting arrested was because of Muhammad Stewart. So. Um, that's how him and Henry Butler got arrested. And we didn't know where it was was coming from. However, I had my reason to believe it was Muhammad Stewart because I later learned from Henry Butler that he was working with Muhammad. And I said, if Muhammad got arrested, I mean, if my brother and and Henry Butler got arrested, then that means that they're going to arrest Muhammad Stewart. And when I seen that they didn't arrest Muhammad Stewart, I knew that it had to be Muhammad Stewart who was the informant. And this is when I know you had some tapes of me and him having talking and taping me throughout the whole thing. And I keep telling him like, don't let these people make you do something. Um, that ain't right, man. Because I knew they was targeting me. And I mean, at one point I even mentioned Todd Kaminsky, like, I know Todd Kaminsky got you doing this, man. But I let him know. But right after my brother got arrested and then I heard that that Henry Butler was arrested, I called him and I told him, I said, listen, man, my brother got arrested. Henry Butler got arrested. You better go underground, man. Like, you better get out of here. This is before I knew he was, was an informant. And they used that also in trial to show guilt because I called him warning him that my brother was arrested and that Henry Butler was arrested and that he need to get out of town. And I just said, man, I know they asked me, so I'm going to say low in X, Y, Z. And they used that to, to say that, um, to show that I must have been a part of something. But all I really was doing was warning the kids because I knew they were working together was warning him that my brother got arrested and that Henry Butler had got arrested.
1: Tell me about Muhammad Stewart. Tell me his story and his relationship with you and your interpretation of his involvement. Can can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So Muhammad was, his mother had um, rented a, a place of mine in Staten Island where my first, son's mother had lived and she was renting the upper the upper apartment and to his mother and so this is how I ended up meeting him um, a few times he came to the studio he said he wanted to rap he was a kind of kid and he was a little a little too wild for my liking you know me having a good heart I pretty much tried to to curb him from from the street some but anyway, um, in some of these outings of my parents coming coming over to the house and, you know, I would invite his mother over and she would bring him along. It even came to one point of where his uh, I had invited his mother. Every year I would do a yearly trip to either Jamaica or Dominican Republic and um, I invited his mother to come because she was sick. She had cancer. And I invited her to come and she begged me to let her son come. So when he came to the... This
1: college from a federal prison.
2: When he came to the Dominican Republic, he met my brothers in them. And this is when him and my brothers had a relationship outside of me. I never did anything with Muhammad doing. However, unbeknownst to me again, his relationship with my brothers were way more closer than I, I knew. And this is how he meets. He meets Henry Butler in Los Angeles. Him and Khalil was also very close. There's tapes of him going over to Khalil's house. I never even knew that he knew where Khalil lived. But he used to be at Khalil's house. They used to have conversations. And this is why... When Khalil figured out or when we figured out that Muhammad Stewart was a cinch, this is when Khalil really started panicking, especially after my brother had got arrested. But anyway, he got stopped one time with 80000 and a firearm. Obviously, he was working with my brother at the time. Um, They must have been watching them. And he agreed... They didn't care about my brother. They didn't care about anybody. He agreed to start taping. So he started taping me for two years. He started taping me. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know he was taping me. It's only since I caught this case that I I learned, you know, all of the, the tapes that they have of me and him. But, uh, so... When, when, After Henry Butler had this conversation one day with him in Los Angeles that he had a million dollars, which he was embellishing and was lying, um, this is when they felt they should arrest Henry Butler because they thought he was my supplier. And so that's how that whole thing unfolded. At the same time, they arrest my brother along with Henry Butler. So they didn't want to give up who their informant was. So they gave my brother the 12 years and they squeezed Henry Butler until he would start saying that he was my supplier, which was a lie. Only person he dealt with was my my brother. He'd never dealt with me like that. And the times he dealt with me like that was in the 90s when I met him. And, and, And he claimed as, as, 2008 or so that he gave me um, kilos of, of cocaine. So Henry, I mean, so so Mohammed Stewart, he's taping me. I you know how bad them niggas want me. I, I'm just saying, my nigga. I know what they're trying to do to me trying to make me into a ball and so on and so forth. And as much niggas that been sitting on me, they ain't been able to prove no bullshit because them niggas lying on, on a bunch of shit. But I know what they, they trying to do with all So then then what if uh, they do, then what the worst shit that I want to have happen to me, my nigga, is for me to get caught up in shit I've never had. First of all, I had nothing to do with it. this is what I'm saying. Hmm. Me third party who don't know nothing what the fuck is going on, me as a third party nigga, all I can do is, is face God. What do you mean face? And the only thing I ask the, motherfuck- the motherfucking investigators to do is to be clear. It's just to be clear that me and nobody ain't, ain't done nothing. And, and, the, and, and during that time while he hated me, my mother passed away. And what makes the government so despicable, man, which hurts my heart, man. Literally tears came to my eyes to find out that even in my mourning stage, while I was mourning, my mother's death, man, they sent this kid into the funeral home. This call is from a federal prison. They sent this kid into the funeral home to take me, they took pictures of me outside of the funeral home. They totally, I mean, totally disrespected my my moment of grief. Yeah. And I guess they must have felt I would have been more vulnerable at that point. Uh, but again, they had the only conversation that... The most damaging conversation they had between me and Muhammad Stewart was me telling him that my brother got arrested and he need to leave town because uh, my brother and Henry Butler was arrested. And I know that they were working together and he should he should stay low. And I said, I know that they're after me and I'm going to stay low. That's the most damaging this guy had, for two years, tried to have a drug conversation with me and about murders and stuff like that, and I didn't have no conversation with him about those things. That's as far as he and Muhammad Stewart go. I've never, ever did anything as far as drugs with this guy.
1: So the, the government portrays him in their story as... You know, I, I don't know, maybe as someone who was like your muscle, somebody who was around you that would carry a gun. This is the story that the, the government behind, behind him as, as a member of your organization, correct?
2: Yes, they, they had him down as, um, as one of my confidants, And this is where their theory goes wrong. If he was my confidant, he he testified at two trials on me. If he was my confidant, wouldn't I sell him drugs? Wouldn't I confess to him about murders I've done? The the most damaging testimony he gave at my murder trial was that I told him that um, G-Unit, they need a funeral. They need to carry a coffin. One of those statements he made. Uh, it, that that was the extent of where his his testimony. But, but at the end of the day, I did nothing. I did nothing with this kid. Nothing at all.
1: What was his relationship with Khalil?
2: Him and Khalil was hustling together. He taped Khalil like how he taped Henry Butler and my brother. He taped... Doing drugs transactions. He even wore body armor or body um, gear where he went face-to-face and taped Khalil about drugs. About shipments of drugs coming in. About shipments of drugs or money, collecting money um, for drugs that Khalil gave him. And stuff like that. Same thing with my brother and with, (laughs) with Henry Buck.
1: Not only was he tape recording phone calls, he also was wearing, at times, a wire.
2: Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And that's, he had a wire when he came to my mother's funeral, taping me.
0: In the audio you just listened to, Jimmy starts to talk about the other federal trial he faced after the Kingpin trial in the Eastern District. Jimmy was charged with conspiracy to commit murder of Lowell Fletcher, a member of G-Unit who was affiliated with Tony Yayo. It is rumored that Lowell Fletcher is the individual who assaulted, at the time, Jimmy's 12-year-old son, Jabalani. I'm going to do a deep dive into this other trial later on down the line in the podcast. I will say that the government used all the witnesses from the drug trial in the murder trial. And that testimony has come into question.
1: There Seems to be a group of people that were in your orbit, and they seem to be independent contractors in a sense, off hustling. Either you know you knew, or you didn't know. You didn't know who who was working together. It's your interpretation of how the government works in these situations to be able to connect. You know, Khalil to Henry Butler to Muhammad, and they make these connections under the guise that you're the puppet master directing everybody. Did that surprise you when you sat in the courtroom?
2: Well, one of the things I, I can say, man, for for three years or so before my arrest, or probably a little bit more, I never got a break from these people. And it just seemed like a year later after my arrest, it was almost like I was in a daze, some outer body kind of experience, man. It, um, you know, to see people who you know, you see people who know the right things to say because I told them what was going on, to see the prosecutor leave the witness into saying certain certain things. Listen, anybody could have gotten up there and all they had to do was fill in the blank. They would say things like, um, the money that was that Jimmy's brother got stopped with eight hundred thousand on a California highway, um, whose money was that? All the person had to say was it was Jimmy. And when you was Going into um, the bank, doing so and so. Who told you to do that? Oh, Jimmy told me to do that, and it was a rehearsed stage show that I was hoping that the jurors were were seeing. Were seeing that this is an act. This is, these guys are uh, rehearsed. And all these guys have to do is point the finger at me. And that's how the prosecutor told their story. Everything that happened in between Khalil, my brother, Henry Butler, and it had to do with drugs. All they had to say was, yeah, that was Jimmy. That was Jimmy's money. Yeah, Jimmy sent that money to me. Yeah Jimmy gave me that money Well I sent that drugs to Jimmy That's all they had to say They didn't have to Really tell a story They just had to Fill in the blank with J I M M Y, And that was how they told the story And so I'm sitting there And at times I'm wondering are they talking about me Because I'm like, damn, that date, I was in London. Or or this other date, I was in Paris. Or this other date, I was in Africa. Or this other date, I was over here. And I was over there. Or I was in California. I was in North Carolina. But the jurors, you know, what what, what they, they overwhelmed us with, with, they overwhelmed the case with, Stuff that didn't even matter or didn't even make sense. But after a month of hearing people say, Jimmy, 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 oh, Jimmy did it, oh, Jimmy said that, or oh, Jimmy told me that, or oh, Jimmy, yeah, that belonged to Jimmy. And a month of that, I could see how a jury can find me guilty on every single charge where a guy could say that he saw me with a firearm. However, they don't have the firearm, and they find me guilty for possessing the firearm. For the world of me, I can't understand how the federal system works. That these invisible phantom drugs, that these guys can say that I gave them monthly 70 and 80 kilos of, of cocaine while I'm out of the country, that I organized it, that I told them where to go to get it and so on and so forth, I was just hoping that the jury seen what I was seeing. And 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 you know, when you have a lawyer that you hope knows your case enough and knows your life enough to where he can also tell a story to rebuke what the government is saying. And then when you find out your lawyer don't even care or even want to or is leaving everything up to the hope to the beyond the reasonable doubt of what the law states, thinking that these jurors would know what the law is and what beyond the reasonable doubt is after hearing a month full of, of, of evidence, and then you find out that your lawyer ain't even doing the, the, the proper job or know the case enough to fight it, then you know that you're screwed. And all you can do is sit there as a lame duck and and wait for your, you know, watching your your funeral, man. It's like you're just sitting there watching the procession of your funeral going to the gallows or leaving the gallows um, after you're beheaded or something. And that's how I sat there. I sat there in shock. I couldn't believe that the justice system allowed this kind of stuff to happen. They had no evidence. This is one of the reasons why they had to say that I confessed to some of those things. Because they had nothing. They had invisible drugs. They had one kilo that I gave to Winston Harris. And they made that into a thousand kilo. This us call it from a federal prison. To where they could take millions of legal money from me. Money that I acquired legally. From representing Mike Tyson, from representing the game, from representing Y-Class, from doing movies. For 20 years, I've been in the the music business. For 20 years, I've made legal money. For y'all to come and take my property, to take my money, to take everything that I've worked for for 20 years, it's documented where my money came from. To let these guys come up to there with invisible drugs and to say that I gave them hundreds of kilos when I was traveling the world doing business with corporate people, with people of all shapes and forms and languages, with lawyers, for y'all to come and say everything that I've done was illegal because these guys said that I gave them hundreds of kilos is ridiculous. And I am in shock that the justice system even works that way. I am in shock. And that's what I was going through, sitting through that trial for a month and two weeks of just hearing, pointing the fingers at me, that it's me, it's Jimmy, it's Jimmy, it's Jimmy, it's Jimmy. I didn't think the jury was going to believe it. But sure enough, they did, because I was found guilty on every single count. And you know what I realized at that point? That I was the perfect scapegoat for these guys. I was the perfect lane for these prosecutors to make a name of, to, 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 to read um, Loretta Lynch, to say in the New York Times that we've finally taken down Jimmy Hinchman. Like, this is a game. Like, this is, I'm the public enemy Number one, it was ridiculous to me.
1: Talk a little bit about the lawyer situation. I know that you have Jeffrey Lichtman, who's probably one of the foremost criminal defense attorneys in the country. And he's been your lawyer for, I don't, I don't know, I'm sure a number of years. Talk to me about why he was not allowed to defend you in court. Well, talk to me about that.
0: This is a key plot twist in the story of Jimmy's legal plight and also a tactic the United States government has used before as it relates to lawyers they feel can beat them or lawyers they know have been on the case for so long the government feels they have an advantage.
2: So the, the government being scared of Jeffrey Lickman because Jeffrey knew every ounce of this case from the beginning to the end. And they knew they would have a fight with, with Jeff. So their 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 tactics, which they've learned from Judge Gleason when he was a prosecutor, the same way that Gleason did to John Gotti with Cutler and him, was to always knock out the lawyer who's gonna be the fighter. And so Todd Kaminsky taking a page out of Judge Gleason's book Moved to disqualify Lickman, saying that he was a part of my organization, that he was my house counsel, part of my organization, that he was going to see witnesses. He was intimidating witnesses, which was a lie, which was an absolute lie, because all Jeff was doing was what a good lawyer does. If there's a witness there, he went and interviewed that witness. There was nothing illegal of what Jeff did. But what they were trying to do was indict Lichtman because they knew for sure if they indicted him, they would get him out of the case. So it was a classic prosecutor's move to disqualify him, saying that he was intimidating witnesses, that he wasn't my lawyer, that he was house counsel to me. Like I'm some mafia guy because my name is Jimmy Henchman. And, and, and that's how they kicked him out. They got him out of the way you know and so that forced me to go with a guy who might have been a good lawyer who if he knew the case well but didn't know the case well and he was brand new to the situation Jeff knew the case from the from in the beginning when it was a financial case he he knew the witnesses and he knew everything else so Jeff was the perfect fighter for him. This case, if you when you talk to Jeff, Jeff will tell you this was a case he was born for. Me and Jeff would have beat the case because we knew every witness, we knew everything that, what was going on with those witnesses, and he he knew the person, a lot of them. Jeff would have knocked this out of the park. I sure enough don't believe that if I had, if I had Jeff, that I would have been found guilty on the, especially. The CCE, the 848, the Kingpin charge that gave me the mandatory life sentence. I don't think I would have been found guilty on those most serious charges. Maybe money laundering, maybe firearm, or even obstruction of justice, but not CCE or Kingpin.
0: Here is the scenario, and you tell me if you think what happened with Jimmy and his defense attorney was just and fair and legal. The government put a motion in front of the judge that Jeffrey Lickman was defined as house counsel for Jimmy. What that meant in plain speak is the government felt that Lickman was compromised, that he acted as a criminal defense attorney for Jimmy's whole criminal organization. This has famously happened before when John Gotti, the Teflon Don, went to trial in the Southern District. Well, in that case, guess who the U.S. attorney was? Like Jimmy just said in the audio, it was Judge Gleason. This is Jimmy's judge on the case. So, Judge Gleason could have declined the motion by the government, and he could have allowed Jeffrey Lickman to go to trial and fight the government for Jimmy. Like Jimmy said, Lichtman knew every angle of the case, all the players, all the gossip, what was true, what was not true, who was lying. So what happens? Lichtman is kicked off the case, and Jimmy's new lawyer must play catch-up. So an entity that wins 95% of the time at trial and stacks the deck goes even further by playing dirty, And maneuvering to get rid of Jimmy's best chance at winning. This is the shit that is so underhanded. It makes your skin crawl. But they do it all the time. Because justice doesn't matter. Winning matters at all costs. Jerry Shargel. The legendary defense attorney who took over the case. And as great as Jerry was as a lawyer. He was at the end of his career. And rumors within some of the mafia guys he had represented, was that Shargel was suffering from dementia. And it got around that you shouldn't hire him. Jimmy didn't have this information. And Lichtman vouched for Shargell because Shargel was Jeff Lichtman's mentor. The dirty move by the U.S. attorney was the first nail in the coffin for Jimmy.